Welcome to the podcast of Living Faith Fellowship in Klamath Falls, Oregon. Now, you will hear Pastor Rich preach the sermon, The Signs of the Times, Part 1, God's Timing, from the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 13, Verses 1 through 8. We pray that God will use this sermon to speak to you directly. And now, to Pastor Rich. So Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith, that is trust in what the Lord has said will happen, will happen, is the substance of things hoped for. And catch this, this is the crazy part. And it's the evidence of things not seen. How does that work? It's the evidence of what you cannot see. I thought evidence was the things you can see, right? Hebrews eleven six also says that without faith, without trusting what he has said will happen, will happen, it is impossible to please God. But I have found in my Christian walk that we say things like that, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But do you know there's so much evidence to prove that God existed, that Jesus walked the face of the planet. There's so much evidence, it's overwhelming. And most critics have never taken the time to study that for themselves. So there's many fulfilled prophecies in scripture and the most amazing evidence that Jesus is who he said he was comes right out of scripture. Now, the world has pointed to people like Nostradamus with his incredible fortune-telling tactics, right? But even though his track record is dismal at best, when you really study what he has said, you got to take these esoteric meanings and stand on one leg and point to the east to make his stuff come true. But not so with the Bible. Bible prophecy has never been proven wrong. Not once. There are times in the Old Testament that God called kings by name before they were ever born. Right. You see critics claiming that Daniel never existed. And then fast forward all these years later, they find that Daniel actually existed. They have the early origin of him and all his prophecies have come to pass. When it comes to Bible prophecies about Messiah, depends on which ones you believe are about Messiah, but there are over 300 specific prophecies about Messiah, where he'd be born, when he'd be born, all those things. And every one of them were fulfilled perfectly in the New Testament in Christ. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, as we continue in that verse by verse study. Really quickly, we have a a lot of topics to cover today, so let's just really quickly catch up where we were last time in Mark. Jesus gave some warnings about the false pretense of the religious leaders. He went right from that teaching on the false pretense of them into talking about how he honors the gifts that are given to him with the right heart and the right motivation. He he saw this widow put in this huge meager offering of two parts of one penny. And he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the rest together with her two parts of one penny. Because Jesus values the heart behind the giving of the time and the talents and the treasures. He doesn't necessarily value the, the amount. It's the heart behind it. And so today is part one of a, of a mini series on end times. And, you know, I've taught on end times once anyway. 
But what happens today is a conversation that happens right after Jesus is teaching in the temple, right after that widow lady put in two parts of one penny. And the disciples come to him and they want to point out the splendor and the beauty of the building. And so Jesus is going to tell them, that's great, that building's so wonderful, but I'm telling you the truth, it will be destroyed soon. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, the destruction of the temple. If your Bibles are open, Mark chapter 13, look at verse 1. It says then, so there's your timeline, as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So let's back up for a second. Just before this, in Mark, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. Just before that, he lamented over the people of Jerusalem and their lack of repentance. Matthew 23, 37, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus was brokenhearted because he wanted to protect Jerusalem. The coming judgment was there and Jesus knew it was coming as sure as he knew he was standing there. But Jerusalem kept rejecting Messiah. He's brokenhearted over the fact that his chosen people would not repent and accept his free gift. What does that tell us this morning, folks? Jesus' compassion over broken, lost people is a good example for us that we should be brokenhearted over people who will not repent and receive Jesus as well. He wanted to gather his chosen people together and protect them. But because of sin and rebellion, the destruction they caused, he couldn't do it. And so they were going to face the consequence of their sin and rebellion. So after Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, he leaves the temple. And as he's leaving, one of his disciples comes up and says, Jesus, look at these buildings. Look at the grandeur. Look at the splendor. Can you just imagine how God is blessing our nation? Look how wonderful the building is. There in your notes. The original temple was built by Solomon, but it was eventually destroyed by Babylon as the Jewish people spent 70 years in captivity. After the Babylonian captivity, maybe you remember, Nehemiah went and rebuilt the walls of the city. And Ezra and Zerubbabel, say that ten times fast, rebuilt the temple. Here was the problem with the rebuilt temple. And tell me if this doesn't happen today. The people see the rebuilt temple and they start crying and moaning and remembering the splendor of the old temple. And they say, this temple doesn't have the glory or the beauty of the old temple. And God very clearly said, they had the gold, they had the majesty, but I was not there. Give me a barn with Jesus' presence instead of the crystal cathedral without him. 
And so the Jewish people mourned. But then later, Herod the Great came along and Herod the Great was known for building a lot of stuff. And he ordered that the temple be remodeled to beyond its former glory. And so they built so many things. But before it was completed, Herod the Great died in 64 A.D., now, here in our narrative, the disciples are sitting there looking at this beautiful building and they think the glory and the splendor is proof of God's blessing on them. Yet Jesus is broken hearted because they will not follow the Lord. There's a good message in there for us. Nothing wrong with having nice things. Nothing wrong with having a nice building. We have been so, so blessed. But if the Lord's not in it, don't make me go. And so Jesus' statement about the destruction of the temple was unthinkable because they thought that this thing was built so well, who could ever tear down something that was built so well? There in your notes, some predictions can be pretty vague, but Mark 13, 2 was a pretty incredible prediction by Jesus saying that one stone would not be left upon another of the temple. Here's why. Remember, Jesus was crucified about 33 A.D.-ish, and it depends again on which historian you listen, but let's just say 30-ish. In the year 66 A.D., the Jews finally get a full-on rebellion against Rome, and the emperor Nero dispatched his army to go and wipe out Jerusalem completely. By the year 68 A.D., Nero committed suicide, and Vespasian was declared emperor, and he sent his son Titus to go in and finish the job at Jerusalem, 68 A.D. Now, during 70 A.D., Josephus, the historian, said that 1.1 million Jews were killed and 90,000 others were taken as slaves. Okay? There in your notes. By 70 A.D., Rome breached Jerusalem's wall and began ransacking the city and catch this one soldier set the temple on fire. OK, now, if you back up to the original temple, Exodus tells us that the original temple had 29 talents of gold. This is all part of the story. Follow with me. Some estimate a talent to be about 70 pounds or so. So there was over 2,000 pounds of gold in the original temple. Now, again, the original temple was destroyed because of Babylon coming in and taking them captive. But we're told that Herod the Great's temple was so much grandeur, so much nicer than the original temple. So how much gold was in that temple? So imagine this, and I know this is crazy. But imagine this Roman soldier sets the temple on fire and it's said that the fire got so hot that those thousands of pounds of gold all melted and actually went in between the stones into the grout. Now imagine Rome wants that gold. I'm pretty sure they wanted the gold, no? So they went in and took one stone by one stone by one stone off of another to get the gold from the grout. Now, think about this. This is 38 years after Jesus predicted that not one stone shall be left upon another. And it happened. We have the history books. It happened exactly as he predicted. And, and here, here's the take home. Here's the aha moment for us this morning. 
Since Jesus perfectly predicted the destruction of the temple, it stands to reason, right, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if he could predict that, don't you think the other things that he predicted will come to pass? Think about this. Now, if you've been serving the Lord a long time, we get to these seasons, areas of our life where we look and say, God, where are you in the hurt? God, where are you in the prayers? Where are you in this stuff? And here's the fill in your blank there. God's delays should not be considered proof that he does not intend to fulfill his purposes or his prophecies. The Apostle Peter said it this way in 2 Peter 3.8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You know, many people have asked since Jesus ascended, where is his return? Why should we believe that he's coming? And, and we think on terms of time and space, but God is outside of time and space and he's got a plan and he's got a purpose. And not until every part of that is fulfilled will he come back because one day is like a thousand years to him. Only one day has passed. It's not a big deal. He also said in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But here, here's how we get saved, right? But is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back? Because he wants you to be saved first. Not all will come, but he certainly wants to give you the chance. And here's the thing about my God. My God is never early. My God is never late. From the time I was born until I draw my last breath, my life is in his hands. And I'm going to be where he calls me to be when he calls me to be there. No event in history has ever thwarted God's perfect plan. Never. He designed them before the foundation of the world and it will happen. So here's Peter patience here. When, when, Roman numeral two, look at verse three. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Don't you wish you could just sit there with Jesus this morning and say, when? I have a feeling he'd probably answer me the way he answered them. But I, I would love to ask, right? You know, since he died on the cross and rose again, everyone has argued about the timing of when Jesus is going to come back. There in your notes. But many people confuse the second coming of Jesus with the rapture of the church. But they are two very different events within the biblical timeline. Many people who don't know the difference between Jesus's physical second coming and the rapture of the church misinterpret scriptures like Mark 13. And then they try to apply these end time events and the tribulation to the church. And again, part one. Man, we could sit here for the next six hours and I would love to go through the book of Revelation with you, but we don't have time. There's another group of people coming in a while. So 
the Bible describes the rapture as a time when Jesus returns in the clouds to remove his church. In other words, those who have died in faith in what Jesus did on the cross, they're born again. Jesus is coming. He's not every eye will see him at that point. That's when he comes in the clouds and he yells as Revelation 4.1 says, come up here. And the church is gone. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So once the church is removed, what's known as the seven year tribulation, catch this, of God's wrath is poured out on a Christ rejecting world. That's important to know. It's God's wrath. OK, it's important. And we'll get to that there in your notes. The tribulation period culminates with the second coming of Christ. When Jesus returns to defeat the Antichrist, destroys evil, and then establishes his millennial kingdom. So here the disciples come to Jesus, right? And, and they had just pointed out the splendor of the temple and they say, Hey, uh, so you're saying the temple's going to be destroyed. Tell us when these things will happen. Now... We sit back here a couple of thousand years later and we think these guys were slow to learn. But I want you to think about what they were expecting. OK, have a little grace with these guys during the triumphant entry of Christ, which had just happened in this timeline a few days earlier. The disciples had no clue what was really going on. They were thinking that Jesus was going to ride in on this stallion and come in as the physical king, defeat Rome and lead the people. They didn't understand that Jesus wasn't coming as a physical king. He was coming as the king of peace. He was coming as the suffering servant. Because if he didn't do that first, we'd be dead in our sins and trespasses. And, and so they don't understand. And so here's the question. Jesus says, this temple, not one stone will be left upon another. And so they ask, when? That'd be the first thing I would ask. Then what will be the sign of your coming? That would be my second question. And then finally, what is the sign of the end of the age? So they want to know when, what and what. Let us know. Right. Understand this. Mark 13 is speaking to a Jewish audience about the signs of his physical return. But it is not talking about the rapture of the church, which was not revealed until after Jesus ascended. Some people teach a post or after tribulation rapture of the church, which makes zero sense. Some people teach a mid trib. In other words, we go through the first half and I'm hoping to explain that to you next week as well. And some people say, well, the church has to go through part of the tribulation. And some people say the church has to go through all the tribulation. Listen, life is tough. We had three deaths in three weeks, three days this week. Life's tough. Let me tell you, life is hard. And Jesus himself said, in this life, you will have tribulation. But fear not, I've overcome the world. But that is not God's wrath. Just think about it this way. 
Why would God take his bride, his children, the ones whom he loves, and pour wrath on them after he paid for our wrath on the cross? It makes no sense. But more on that. That's a bunny trail for this morning. Catch this. If the second coming of Jesus happened when the temple, because see, some people, preterists, believe that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, that's when Jesus came back and all this began. So here's my statement to that. If the second coming of Jesus happened back then, according to scripture, then we're living in the millennial kingdom. I want you to watch the news today. Do you think we're living in the millennial kingdom where where the lion lays with the lamb and everybody's at peace? No. (laughs) As early as 51 AD, the church was waiting for the coming of Christ. And by the way, here's another one. Here's your best one against a preterist who says that, you know, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, now we're living in the millennial kingdom. The book of Revelation that John wrote was written in 90 AD. Temple was destroyed in 70 AD. How's your math? So Paul wrote two letters to the Thessalonians because their very worry was they missed the rapture. They thought, we missed it. What are we going to do? And so Paul wrote two full books to tell them to simmer down, children. Right. And the whole premise was to assure the church that they had not missed the rapture. First Thessalonians 416. Paul said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. There's the word rapture in the Latin caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in air. And thus we will be with the Lord always. But Paul also taught something else. And and this is so settling for my heart because Paul tried to teach this church that God's tribulation, God's wrath was not going to be poured out on Christ's children. First Thessalonians 1.10 says to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. There in your notes, the best one. First Thessalonians 5.9 for God did not Appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the disciples hear this prediction of Jesus and they're like, what, when and when, what's the deal? Roman numeral three. So the beginning of sorrows. Look at verse five. Jesus answered them and began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows. So there are some things that Jesus points to here to answer the disciples about religious deception, geopolitical upheavals and natural disasters. 
But there's also some things that we can point to in our generation, which is so cool. My generation is the first generation that can point to some of these things and say, the end could not have happened till I was born or close to it. We'll get into them. The first one is the nation of Israel was reborn. After the defeat in 70 A.D., Israel stopped being a nation all the way to 1948. No, I wasn't born in 48, but then it was ratified in 1967. Yes, I was born in 1967. So prior to Israel becoming a nation again, end times could not begin. Israel had to be a nation. And by the way, point to any other nation that ceased to be a nation for 1900 years that God brought together as a nation again. It's nothing short of a miracle. How about this one? Number two, the increase of weapons of mass destruction. A couple hundred years ago, this was unheard of. But today there's believed to be over 16,000 nuclear weapons with nine countries. No other generation in history could say that. Number three, and this one goes all the way back. Religious deceptions will happen as many deceivers will claim that they are the Messiah. Je Jesus warned, there's going to be many people who step up and say, I am he. And there's hundreds of scriptures proving that Jesus is he. And we've gone over this before and I'll just touch on it. But the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is astronomical. They say that you'd have a better chance of taking quarters across the whole state of Texas, knee high, painting one red, and on your first try, reaching your hand and then picking out the red quarter in the state of Texas, than for one man to fulfill just eight of the 305 that Jesus fulfilled. So Jesus is the only one. There in your notes, many false prophets from the first century and even till today have appeared claiming to be Messiah. How about this one? Geopolitical upheavals, wars, and rumors of wars. When Jesus was speaking about wars and rumors of wars, he wasn't talking about little skirmishes, local skirmishes. He was talking about major wars. This is what Henry Ironside said. Ever since Jesus ascended to heaven, wars and rumors of wars have been constant reminders of our folly rejecting the Prince of Peace. There in your notes, Jesus was speaking about globalized wars happening at the same time and happening with increasing frequency and intensity. I want you to think about World War II for a minute. My grandfather fought in World War II. Of course, I wasn't alive, but the statistics say that it was the deadliest war our nation has ever had. They said that 80 million People died from World War II besides the combat and the illnesses that followed and all that stuff. 80 million people. And think about this. 80 million people died with technology of 1945. <laughs> what is our technology in 2023? We got kids that sit in a room and fly drones. I mean, if we had a World War today, it, I, I think we'd be devastated. 
Do you know that how many conflicts are going on today? Since the United Nations formed right after 1945, after World War II, we have not had a year where we haven't had a conflict. Isn't that incredible? World War II was bad, but it's nothing compared to what's going to happen with modern weapons. How about this one? Increased natural disasters. One economist from Ohio State said that since 1980, there have been 212 disasters a year, resulting in $1.2 trillion in damage. With those, since 1990 to 2000, it's gone up tenfold. How about earthquakes? They say from 1900 to 2014, earthquakes have gone up 400%. If that's not bad enough... Scientists have said it's not if, but when Yellowstone erupts. And when Yellowstone erupts, there will not be an inch of the continental United States that will not be covered by lava and ash. That's what they say, the They Brothers. They've also discovered the largest volcano in the world, the size of the state of New Mexico, under the Pacific Ocean. What if that thing rips open? So where is all this leading? Jesus said, this is the beginning of sorrows. That's the beginning? What does the end look like? There in your notes, the occurrences described by Jesus in Mark 13 are not the end, but they are creating the foundation for the end of the age. For those of you who are in Christ, I want to give you another scripture that's so reassuring for us. True story. The seven-year tribulation is currently being held back by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2.7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, capital H, who now restrains, will do so till capital H, he, is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist is being held back by the Holy Spirit. A little quiz for you, kids. Where does the Holy Spirit live? In us. I heard five of you. God bless you guys. You've been paying attention. If the Holy Spirit has to be taken away for the Antichrist to be revealed, where am I? Jesus said he's never leaving me, never forsaken me. Jesus said that I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. If he's never leaving me, if he's never taken his Holy Spirit from me, I can't be here. So these religious deceptions, the, the geopolitical upheavals, all this happens, these natural disasters, and people are crying out, peace, prosperity, security, rumors of wars, and all these things going on. Please help, please, please, please. And all of a sudden, this one organization rises up and it forms a one world government. Can't you see how easy this would be? If everything was going wrong, everything's chaos, we need somebody, we need a hero. We need someone to come in and make peace. And so this, nation, this one world nation thing rises up. They take over the finances. They bring world peace. They make a peace treaty in the Middle East for the first time. And then this cunning one man steps up as its leader. Ain't he wonderful? The Antichrist and the beast make this one world government and one policy making group. 
and they've got all the answers. So that's where we stop today. There's much more next week, but I want to get practical. Here's my practical statement for you this morning. Our Heavenly Father knows exactly where we are at this moment. And nothing, absolutely nothing can happen to me that doesn't first go through the filter of his grace. He promises. He knows me. But why, God? (laughs) Why? There in your notes, here's why. God often uses trials to strengthen our patience, allowing our Christian faith to mature and to become complete. James put it this way. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, God hears the cries of his kids. God will answer in his perfect timing, in his perfect way. And you know what's left out of the Bible? I've studied this a couple of times. And the one thing that's left out of here is my opinion. (laughs) Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. So here's the deal. I want to give you a few things that you're going to need, some tools in your tool belt as a way of practical application in order to trust the Lord and trust his timing, even when it doesn't feel good. Okay, you ready? Number one, the proof of God's promises in his word. Again, hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. It's the only book in the history of the world that can do it so accurately. The rise and fall of nations and other things, the fulfilled Bible prophecies of Jesus and so many other things. It proves that the men who wrote this were inspired by an all-knowing, all-caring God and what to say to us in our time of need. No other book in history could substantiate the truth the way God's word does. Here's one that we often got to remember, and I heard this yesterday. Number two is God's faithfulness in our past. I was talking to someone last night who said, you know why I have a prayer journal? And they started bringing it up. And I was like, you're stealing my thunder for tomorrow morning. (laughs) I encourage you to write a prayer journal. We're forgetful people. And when you're going through it and you put down what you're going through and then remember, unlike when you send prayer requests to me and don't tell me what happened, you go in there and write how God answered that prayer. In three years from now, when you're going through a trial that no one can understand and you turn back and go, wow, God was faithful there, there, there. There, 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 there. He's probably going to be faithful this time, too. The fact that you're alive this morning and breathing is proof of God's love. Psalm 3, 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Here's a reassuring one and a scary one. Number three, God knows the beginning and the end of all things. In order for me to trust the Lord and not stress out at all life throws at me and the current events that are on the news channels, I need to know that I know that I know that God acts on my behalf. 
when I rely on him and his timing and not my own timing, I have peace that surpasses all human understanding that guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. We know we're limited as humans, but my dad is not limited at all. And he's on my side. He knows my beginning. He knows my end. The prophet Isaiah said it this way, Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not even done yet, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Doesn't matter if we're waiting on a job or a car or a spouse or whatever it is. Don't get ahead of God. I'm telling you, trust me on this. If you get ahead of God, you will get something that God doesn't have in store for you. You think it's a blessing, it'll turn into worms. I'm telling you. And don't lag behind. Stay in lockstep with God and He will bless you. Wait on Him, trust Him. He's got a plan, and he knows exactly the perfect time. His timing is perfect, and a lot of times he doesn't give me what I want. And, you know, a year down the road, I'm like, oh, praise God he didn't answer that prayer. All right, number four. When we learn to wait on God, we grow in our faith. Again, faith and patience go together. Let me give you the verse I started with, Hebrews 11.1, but this time in the New Living Translation. It asks the question, what is faith? It's the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. And it's the evidence of things we cannot yet see. How many times have we given up way too soon? And God wanted us to not grow weary while doing good. Resting in the Lord is the only way to the peace. It's the only way. Proverbs 3, 5 says... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. So here's the main point. If Jesus was able to predict the destruction of the temple with such accuracy 38 years before it happened, I'm saying he can predict everything. And I'm saying everything he predicted will happen. The temple, catch this, let this sink in. The temple stood as the unshakable, unmovable might of Israel. That's what they prided themselves in. That's our temple. No one can tear it down. Even while we're under Roman rule, we have our temple. And yet it came crumbling down. So here's your question to go more over breakfast with. What things in your life right now today are you trusting in that have the potential of come crumbling down all around you? See, here's the thing. Jesus said he'd never leave. He'd never forsake. And we know he has the power to forgive our sins. He has the power to sustain us in the presence. And he knows where we're going to be in the future. So those things that are crumbling down or have the potential to crumble down around you. There's only one who loved you and gave himself for you and his word will stand forever. So I, I said there were three deaths in three days. 
And it was pretty incredible. And along with that, there was also a man who had a massive heart attack. And the young man, 26 years old, got killed three days ago. And I'm going back to Kansas to do his funeral. And I got to thinking, you know, life is so fleeting, right? And it, it's really torn us up because we're very, very close to the family. And my friend is broken, just broken over the death of his son. But then I thought back to a couple of weeks, a sermon I gave here. And, you know, I said, Mark Cahill said, in 300 million years from now, the only thing that's going to matter is who is in heaven and who is not. And I thought about that. And Seth Beaver was baptized in our church. He received Christ, was baptized in our church back there in Plains, Kansas. And I thought about that. 26 years old is too young. It's just too young. But yet, the only thing that's going to matter is 300 million years from now? 300 million years. A million years. That's way too far. The only thing that's going to matter in 100 years from now is who is in heaven and who is not. And because Jesus was able to predict with such accuracy what was going to happen 38 years later, when he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, I think he knew what he was talking about. So if you're sitting in here this morning and you don't know my Jesus, let me tell you, death's odds are pretty impressive. One out of every one of us will die. If the rapture does not happen, we will die. And then we will face God. I hope you face him in the righteousness of Christ and not in your own righteousness. Because there's coming a day. Maybe it's 100 years from now, but there's coming a day. You're, you're going to face a holy God. And he loves you and gave himself for you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. As we pray, there'll be some of us in the back. And this morning, I just pray. I pray that no one will walk out of here without knowing my Jesus. It would tear me apart to know that you sat through a message heard how accurate my Jesus is and how he loved you and died on the cross for you and you walked out saying no thank you. That would break my heart. Thank you for listening to Pastor Rich preach the sermon The Signs of the Times Part 1 God's Timing from the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 8. Tune in next week as we continue the Gospel of Mark sermon series. Join us every Sunday morning either in person at 8.30 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. or online at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Watch our live stream on our website, YouTube, or Facebook page. Our website is livingfaithklamath.com. That is livingfaithklamath.com. To find our Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram profile, simply search for Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. That is Living Faith Fellowship Klamath. You can also find these links in the description of this week's episode. If you want to show your appreciation, you can tell others about us, subscribe to our podcast, and you can also leave a review so more people can hear the word of God. Thank you again, and God bless you.